This is Mayo Clinic Talks, a curated weekly podcast for physicians and healthcare providers. I am Amit Ghosh, a general internist at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Today's discussion is on post-COVID long haulers. Today we are joined by Professor Raymond Razanobile, who is the Vice Chair of Infectious Disease, Chair of the Community Infectious Disease Practice, and he's also the Program Director of Infectious Disease Fellowship Program. He's also involved in a lot of emerging therapies. The main thing that we are going to discuss today is the post-COVID long haulers. Dr. Razanobile, welcome to our show. Can you kindly tell us what is the whole concept of post-COVID long haulers? Thank you for having me, Dr. Gosh. And this is a syndrome that has emerged as the pandemic kind of rages on. So this is the syndrome wherein patients who had prior COVID develops these lingering symptoms for weeks and weeks and months. And these are symptoms related to brain fog difficulty in remembering things. Uh, there are some that describe symptoms related to easy fatigability, something related to chronic fatigue, something related to the fact that they're just not back to their usual health, even if they have already recovered from COVID. So some proportion of patients will experience those symptoms, and uh, those are the ones that we call the long haulers, or some actually describe them as chronic COVID syndrome. So I've been reading about it uh, since I knew I was going to interview you. So anytime I have to interview you, I have to catch up on my knowledge. And exactly like you said, these are supposed to be more common in women compared to men. And they're also being seen increasingly in healthcare workers right up in the onset, March and April, who were exposed to a lot of COVID. Yep. I also understand that there is no link between being in the ICU and getting the symptoms. People who have had mild and moderate symptoms also seem to get it. Can you elaborate on these features? Yes. So, so the exact risk factors for this is really difficult to define yet as we're growing. You mentioned several, but I don't know whether they will span out as the risk factors when we basically assess large populations of this patient population. As far as the data shows, it happens in anybody. It happens in men and in women. It happens in young people. Uh, It happens in older populations. There's some data that suggests that maybe it's more common in the younger patient population, Uh, but that will only pan out if it's real as we learn to study more of these cases. It has happened even in patients who are appear to have mild symptoms of COVID to start with. And there are some that has happened in patients who has had more severe uh, infections. In those who had more severe infections, particularly those that have stayed in the intensive care unit for extended period of time, there are many explanations as to why they could develop the symptoms in the long term. For example, you know, uh, encephalopathy that happens during the ICU care and all those kinds of things could potentially explain this. But since it's also happening, even in patients who are having mild symptoms, not even requiring hospitalization, it gives us a pause and ask, why does it happen in some individuals and why does it happen for long periods of time? And those are the things that we don't know the answer yet at this time. These are the things that are being studied uh, by several investigators across the world. I know you mentioned about younger people and there's this one paper that uh, even though they said 
long haulers can happen mainly in the older patients, but a quarter of the patient between ages 18 to 34 yeah. have been seen to have these symptoms and four or five symptoms are striking out. One is this huge brain fog that you're talking mm -hmm. about, the thinking mm -hmm. problem. Fatigue seems to be uniformly mm -hmm. excessive. Shortness of breath mm -hmm. remains the third largest. And then joint pains and chest yep. pains is very surprising. Yep. This may mm -hmm. not be known as one of the common findings of this post-COVID long hauler. Yep, certainly that's been described in some, but as you mentioned, the most common that actually really made this more known as a syndrome is the brain fog. They just cannot remember things that they used to remember before. And the mechanism behind that is unclear, as you would you know, expect. It's still too early to define the mechanism. Could it be secondary to some sort of an infection, some sort of encephalitis in the brain at some point that we did not recognize? Could this be something related to just the inflammation that happens uh, during the COVID? So these are just theories that has been proposed and that are being investigated at this time. Another one to just like mention is the fatigue. They just don't have the energy to do their activities of their daily living. Uh, this has been attributed to some sort of a post-viral fatigue syndrome. Others have describe this as, is this a chronic fatigue type of an illness? So there's similarities in the clinical manifestations, definitely. So uh, that is something that, you know, will need to be looked into. You mentioned about the shortness of breath. The primary organ that's affected by COVID is the respiratory system. So there's been some studies suggesting that the inflammation that happened during that time can lead to some sort of a chronic uh, scarring process. Could this be the reason why some patients do have the symptoms that's lingering like shortness of breath? Another one too that is described is palpitations and some do develop chest pains. COVID do affect the heart, for example, and could this be a long-term effect of that primary infection way, way back on, or is this secondary to the inflammation that happened during the infection process? There's no definite answer. These are just proposals that investigators are looking into uh, so that proper treatment can be uh, afforded to these patients if we know what's causing these ailments. It is uh, interesting that uh, the chronic fatigue syndrome, I see a lot of patients like that in our clinic. Uh, being a general internist, and we do have an entire section devoted to it. There has been a lot of postulations in the past that it could be virus-mediated or some kind of a viral, even though there was all kinds of tests showing some antibodies to Epstein-Barr virus or CMV virus in this category. We could never pinpoint clearly, and patients would get disappointed because they felt that they had some kind of virus. But this is a, such a rapid development. I mean, we are talking about seven, eight months now mm -hmm. of this kind of post-COVID mm -hmm. holler in a very rapid uh, emerging. Millions of patients have been infected. And you said 80% of the patients are mild to moderate. So mm -hmm. I, I'm, I'm suspecting that uh, once this crisis goes away, or even as we are seeing right now, even with the crisis on of active COVID, physicians are continuing to see this merging of COVID yep. and they're being very confused on how to approach and how to treat. This may be one etiology, the viral etiology, which we have thought about causing chronic fatigue. We could never prove it with certainty, which in COVID, at least we have a almost like a Cox postulate, but it's not fulfilling all the Cox. There's an infection, there's an effect, but we're not able to even, it persists even after we take out the infection. 
and that is correct. And I think this is probably is similar to what you just said, like chronic fatigue related to, you know, could this be EBV in the past? Could this be herpes 6 in the past? And all those kinds of viral etiologies that's been um, attributed to some of these syndromes. It is a real syndrome. People linger. People have some dissatisfaction in their health just because of the symptoms that they're having. But it's just difficult to understand the mechanism behind that. There was an infection trigger at some point are the symptoms that are persistent related to persistent infection, or is this more like an after effect of a previous infection that has happened? There's no right or wrong answer to that, but these are some things that the medical community is grappling about and trying to kind of define, because this is the only way we could find what the treatment will be uh, if we know what the mechanism is. But right now, uh, I don't think there's any evidence or solid evidence to uh, indicate one way or another. Could this be a result of that direct infection from COVID, or is this an after effect of the inflammation uh, that has happened during the prior active infection? There are so many groups now in European groups, there's a British group, an Italian group. In the social media, they're forming groups mm-hmm. because patients are not getting help from their doctors. Uh, they're trying to find out in this uh, chat rooms and groups to find out if they can help each other. And these groups are amazing. We are seeing groups of several thousands of members. And the list of the symptoms are long. I mean, almost 150 symptoms, according to one of the websites. That's right. And one of the symptoms which is very interesting and debilitating for the patient is the autonomic symptoms. Mm -hmm. Patients are having temperature alteration. Nobody's having high, high temperature, but low temperature. They're having GI symptoms and they're feeling dizzy, lightheadedness. From, uh, from orthostatic hypotension, for example, autonomic dysregulation, all those kinds of things have been described. CNS effects, we started with the mental fogginess, but peripheral effects, including some sort of neuropathy, uh, autonomic dysfunction, probably related to that as well, has been described. And part of that is because COVID infects through the ACE2 receptor, which is widely uh, distributed throughout the body. It's present in the blood vessels, for example. So there's been some theory suggesting that could this be a result of some sort of endotheliitis in many of these organs that are affected. There's been some suggesting chronic renal injury down the line as as part of this long hauler syndrome. All of these are uh, being investigated into. Now, because of the pandemic, we get millions of patients that have had COVID in the past. So we see many of them. If you look back to the first SARS outbreak way back almost two decades ago. There's also a syndrome similar to this, but because the total number of patients during that time is roughly less than 10,000, so the number is not that high. But now we're talking into about millions of people infected, so you're going to see this effect of so-called post-viral syndrome, the long haulers, to basically remain as part of the medical dilemma uh, that physicians are and providers are faced as, as we deal with this pandemic. According to one of the reports, I was reading that almost 10% of the patients with COVID-19 could have. The yep. prevalence is still not clear, so that is like millions of patients. What would be your advice to hospital leaders or institutional leaders regarding management of these patients? Should they have a separate clinic? Should they have an electronic consult? We now have a form of mind-body kind of approach, managing the symptoms, if it's orthostatic, of course, there is unique management for those symptoms. We have a smart program where we take these patients 
working through some of these cognitive challenges that they're having or just supporting them, being empathic, even understanding that even though we don't have all the answers at the present moment, we are there with them. And hopefully as more time progresses, as a lot of these symptoms might minimize or disappear. But of course, it's so early in the course that we don't know uh, when that would happen. But just looking at some of our experience with chronic fatigue and fibromyalgia, that category patients, uh, a significant amount of them do improve with this general body conditioning and approach. So what would be your advice uh, for healthcare leaders? That's the best we could do right now, Dr. Ghosh, is doing the same thing that we're doing for our other patients, whether this is related to COVID or is this something related to the other post-viral syndromes that you mentioned uh, you're seeing with all these approaches that you just mentioned. The most important thing is to really accept that these are real symptoms. You may have seen that there's some reports saying that you know it's being alluded to some sort of a a psychiatric illness. No, it's not. It's something that is ongoing. We have to accept that as a medical community and support these patients. You mentioned about some sort of a telemedicine or telehealth. They have to be connected to uh, medical providers just to basically, you know, uh, hear out those symptoms as well as advice as to how best to kind of approach that. I'm saying that too is because sometimes there's some markers there or some sort of a signal that this may be something like uh, somatic ineffiology. You mentioned about chest pain earlier, right? Chest pain is something that could be part of the long hauler syndrome. But, you know, chest pain could be a manifestation as well of pulmonary embolism, right? We've had cases of COVID even after they've recovered who comes in with, you know, pulmonary embolism and thrombosis. Part of that too is because of the infection of the blood vessels as well. So all of this should be uh, addressed by our medical providers who care for these patients. I really like your approach because you're absolutely right uh, because fatigue is a big kind of a diagnostic box to be in. Even though we might think it is post-COVID, post-long hauler, we really need to be very careful not to label them early to kind of meticulously look at some of these markers. Out of all the markers that you think about, what would be the couple of markers that you would suggest uh, keeping in mind that we should be cost-effective, evidence-based for patients who have had COVID two, three, four months ago. What should yeah. we change? The one that really kind of bothers me and actually should kind of raise a red flag is somebody who's having a lot of chest pains. You know, could this be something more like cardiac or something related to thrombosis. That's probably uh, the danger symptom that I'm be more uh, worried about when uh, patients complain about this weeks and months after a prior COVID uh, infection. Dr. Rezanabale, according to you, you have seen in the past infectious disease would be involved in every patient of chronic fatigue. We'll send to you and then you'll send them back to us saying, there's no active infection going on, please manage. What kind of advice could you give to the general practitioners, primary care? When should an infectious disease doctor be contacted either by an electronic consult or a direct consult for patients? What are those small groups of patients which would definitely need your expertise? 
the patients that are previously severely critically ill to start with when they were having COVID. And the reason I'm saying that is because these patients are the ones that are getting a lot of immunomodulators, like they get a lot of steroids, they get a lot of other, maybe even in investigational drugs. So as a result of that, they're at risk for possible opportunistic infections down the line. So if somebody's having shortness of breath because of this, it may not be attributed to just the long hauler syndrome for example. Is this somebody who already has a secondary bacterial or a fungal infection because this patient had received high doses of steroids in the past? So that, that's one thing that I would like to know when I get a consult about cases like this. So clearly those 10% of patients who are in the 10 or 15% in the hospital, moderate, severe, and definitely ICU. Correct. Down the line, two, three, four months, they develop some of these uh, medications. Are there any medications uh, like steroids, remdesivir, any of the monoclonals or any of the others which would raise a red flag or all of them are equally worrisome? All of them are equally, particularly for those that modulate the immune system. Uh, I mentioned steroids. There was some point in our recent pandemic experience about the use of interleukin-6 antibodies. Uh, remember that we don't use that now, but there are some patients who were given this in the past. So certainly during that time, we were watching for viral reactivation and the like. Uh, another drug that's being used is the complement inhibitor, such as ecolizumab and rabadizumab. These patients are at risk for meningococcal infections, for example. When we use this as part of our clinical trial, we also give some sort of a prophylaxis, but just be mindful that when we block complement, that the risk for uh, meningococcal infection goes high. And there are other uh, immunomodulator trials that are ongoing across the world. And the basic principle is whenever you suppress an immune system, there's always the risk of uh, increasing the risk of uh, other infections after that. This is quite important uh, because of just the volume of patients based on um, the, the pandemic uh, millions of patients, 10% of them are equally big millions. Every hospital probably are better off approaching these patients using a team-based approach where your infectious disease is, uh, is consulted, especially when there are possibility of missed infection or ongoing infection. And then there could be a cardiological uh, involvement based on the chest pain part, a pulmonary involvement, and many others rather than just blowing it away, saying it's all fatigue, it's brain fog, nothing else. Uh, So listening carefully to the patient, being empathic to them. So it might sometimes be more than just a video consult. It might be a video consult to start, get the input, and then Mm -hmm. based on what we feel, might have a face-to-face consult because these are um, still emerging. I think we are still learning. In Mayo Clinic, uh, what are the efforts that we are making to deal with these patients? Basically, you did mention about uh, the clinic that you're doing in terms of this post-viral syndromes with with this fatigue, as well as fibromyalgia. The efforts that you're doing there are really helping uh, many of the patients in the past based on experience from your clinic. The same approaches can be applied to this as well. So the uh, providers in that group should really get prepared because we're going to be seeing more and more of this as the uh, pandemic uh, goes on. And as 
time goes by, we will know uh, what the eventual outcomes of these patients will be. But in the interim, uh, we should be believing of all their symptoms, not disregarding them. And when there are concerns of possible somatic conditions, to kind of evaluate that uh, so that the proper treatment can be provided. So one of the last question I want to ask, there's a lot of talk about Pfizer vaccine, Moderna vaccine. Mm-hmm. Um, they, are, they are around the corner. We are hearing different dates. Would this be another motivating factor for people who have not had COVID saying, listen, COVID is not a one-time hit. You can, you can survive that, but you can have this post-COVID long hauler and you can probably avoid both of them if you get the vaccine. Do you think we can talk with patients and give them that kind of a message? It should be part of the messaging. I agree with you. There's been efforts about this masking. Some people mask, some don't. Ensuring that uh, you wash your hands, you ensure uh, social distancing efforts. Once this vaccine is available, I know there's a lot of debate about should I take it, should I not? Uh, I think this is one way of many other efforts of stopping this pandemic. The remdesivir that you mentioned about the treatment, which is approved in the hospital, the monoclonal antibodies that have given uh, FDA, EUA approval, these are just temporizing measures. They can help in trying to kind of reduce the duration of symptoms, for example, but preventing the infection altogether, I think is going to be the key in stopping this pandemic. And at the same time, trying to prevent this increasing number of long haulers or chronic COVID syndrome patients uh, that we are now starting to see. What we have heard, Dr. Razanbele, is a, is a professor of medicine and vice chair of infectious disease, talk on a very important topic of post-COVID long haulers. But what he stressed was very important. The only way you can avoid COVID, the only way you can avoid a post-hauler syndrome is not get it in the first place. And if you don't want to get it in the first place, all the measures, including masking, hand washing, keeping a distance, especially with the holiday season coming in, with the winter setting in, is, is most important. And with the vaccine in the near future coming in, which could protect the infection and pr- protect the post hauler but even the vaccine is not 100%. We're hearing 95%. So most important is making all efforts possible not to get it in the first place. And for those of whom we have got COVID, we have survived COVID and got a post hauler syndrome, we do have clinic available in Mayo Clinic and in your local clinics, everybody is increasingly aware of it. Uh, approach your physician if you're not feeling right, um, because this would need a team effort. So with this, even though we do not understand why this happens, we have seen enough evidence in the world literature and the cases we have seen that post holler syndrome is here to stay. Dr. Dazenable, any last statements from you about Anything emerging? I know you're doing, you're, you're in charge of the monoclonal antibody treatment. Uh, would that bring some hope? Shorten the treatment, shorten the duration of COVID and possibly not expose the patient to any immunological damage which could happen? So the monoclonals are there. It was given emergency use authorization by the FDA. Uh, it's still undergoing clinical trials in the inpatient setting, but since it is now available for emergency use, it is available to some high-risk patients in an effort to prevent them from requiring hospitalization as well as to reduce the duration of symptoms. Hopefully it will work, but this is our effort, one of the many efforts that we're doing in trying to stop this pandemic 
and reduce its impact on human health. Thank you, Dr. Rezanabola, and I wish everybody a very happy Thanksgiving. In this season of Thanksgiving, we are grateful to scientists, researchers like Dr. Rezanabola, who are right there in the forefront working for us. But we want to extend a, a message of hope that regardless of where we find ourselves, there is a lot of help. We are all going to do this as a team. With that, uh, I thank you, uh, Dr. Rezanabola, for your time. If you have enjoyed the Mayo Clinic podcast, please subscribe, stay healthy, please be careful, and we'll see you back next day. Thank you.